Welcome to California Groundbreakers, which focuses on the place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Listen in so you can know and better understand what's happening here in California. Find out how you can help, be more involved, and get inspired to break your own ground. We're running a monthly series called Food for Thought, in-depth conversations with groundbreakers who run restaurants, farms, bars, breweries, and wineries around California and are shaking up the way we eat and drink. For our fifth talk, we're focusing on the farm in California's farm to fork efforts and talking about the future of farming in this state. We live in a place that's typically referred to as the breadbasket of the world, but California's agriculture industry is at a crossroads today. Are there enough young farmers to take over for the older ones who want to retire? Can they afford to make a living in this high cost of living state? Can they be profitable and sustainable when climate change makes it harder to predict what they should and can grow? These questions weigh heavily on the ag industry in California right now, and the answers are important to anyone who buys their products, meaning all of us. We're at the Sacramento Natural Foods Co-op, talking with two people who are helping to shape the future of farming in California. Mary Kimball from the Center for Land-Based Learning in Winters is inspiring and training new farmers. Dennis Donahue from the Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology in Salinas is partnering Silicon Valley with the Central Valley to fend technology that will make farmers financially and environmentally sustainable. Join us to hear these two groundbreakers in the ag industry predict how California can keep its place on top of the food supply chain. So welcome to California Groundbreakers. I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm the executive director of the organization. We are a civic engagement, a nonpartisan nonprofit, and we focus on um, doing panel discussions and Q&As with innovators who are doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. And these are cocktail conversations we're having it this evening at the Sacramento Natural Food Co-op about the future of farming. And um, what could be a topic that is considered by some dry or boring. It's actually very interesting and very relevant to all of us as Californians because we eat this food and um, we pay the, the farmers who are, and the ranchers who are raising uh, the produce and the livestock for us to eat. So I wanted to say uh, before we start off, a thanks to very uh, a very um, special people who helped make this event possible. Obviously, the co-op, we are here at the Sacramento Natural Foods Co-op uh, this evening. And so special thanks to the cooperator-in-chief, Dan Arnett, uh, our board, the board president, Michelle Masudo, and special thanks to the marketing team here who helped me put this event together, Christine O'Hara, Julia Thomas, Lori Friedley, and Kristen Schoenborn for uh, your help, much appreciated. I also want to thank a couple of our board of director members who are here tonight helping out in various capacities uh, and just in general. J.E. Pano, who's also serving up the beer, uh, his company's Roostaller, and Scott Eggert, who is manning the, the welcome desk. So thank you both. Of course, I want to thank the panelists, especially um, one who is driving back to Salinas tonight after this event, three hours, uh, and uh, Winters Woodland. Woodland. So thank you, panelists. And of course, to you, the audience, for coming. I appreciate it. So this event is about uh, 45 minutes of moderated Q&A, followed by audience coming up to the mic. 
So um, I wanted to just start off by saying what this event is about. This is actually the sixth in a series that we call Food for Thought. It's taking a look at what's going on here in Sacramento and the Central Valley in terms of this, what does farm to fork mean? That's a term that obviously many of you have heard Sacramento is using that as a branding term. Who are the people behind the farm and the fork and the wine and the beer and the ag and all the aspects of what we eat and drink? Uh, there's a lot of innovators uh, here on a local basis statewide. And so we've been talking to the people who are actually um, producing the things that we eat and drink. They have really interesting stories and they're doing really interesting things. Tonight we're focusing on the future of farming because that is a big deal. That is a major part of our uh, um, economy here in California. And there's a lot of concern about the next generation of farmers um, who are going to be you know, uh, keeping it going because uh, I guess there's farmers who are retiring, there's farm succession, there's farm consolidation. Um, so those are things to be concerned about. Immigration and how that affects ag, which is something we'll be focusing on later on in 2018. We've got, a, we've got an event, a Food for Thought event, through the end of 2018. There's so much going on. Um, the upside is, I guess, we are a technological innovator. So there's ag tech. And that could be something where that could uh, boost profitability, boost sustainability, and then in terms of getting people inspired to get into farming on a part-time basis, full-time basis, urban farming basis. So we have two people here who are really, uh, quote unquote, they've got their hands in the dirt when it comes to these issues. So uh, thank you both for coming. I don't do the introductions of the panelists. They know themselves so well, I let them do it. So I always start with the person on my left and ask them uh, a three-part question. Obviously, what their name is, uh, their current role and organization briefly, because we'll talk more about that in detail. And I always like to ask a personal note um, that's related to the topic. So in terms of you know farming, uh, I'm fall is always a time I'm hungry, I'm starving, I always want to eat, because when the sun goes down, I'm just always thinking about food. So I'm also looking for recipes in terms of what to make. So because you two are so focused on farming, I thought I'd ask um, a good, what's your favorite meal that you put together based on what you grow in the backyard, uh, farmer's market, uh, either something that you're doing now, because fall is bounty time, or just year round. So let me start with the woman on my left. Thank you very much. I'm Mary Kimball. I'm the executive director of the Center for Land-Based Learning. We are headquartered in Winters. Um, and in terms of favorite food or things I like to eat, uh, I am very blessed that we obviously work with so many great farmers and we have a lot of incredible produce that ends up in our office, like on a daily basis. But the things that I like to grow in my own garden that make their way into my food, dinner as much as possible when I'm home are those fresh um, vegetables for salad. So in the summer, I always have to have tomatoes, I always have to have cucumbers, always have to have basil. Like that's the three most critical pieces for me to make a, a very quick salad that kind of anything else can be made around it. But that is what I grew up with. Um, and it, it is like always that kind of summer in the Central Valley, gotta have those pieces. So for me, that's the critical. So like a tomato, tomato cucumber caprese? Yeah, it's pretty simple, <laughs> very quick. Dennis Donahue, uh, noting for the record, Selena's the three-hour drive, 
176 miles away from here, so so we're in the circle of supply here. So just 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 want to note that we're we may be big, but we're local. Uh, and uh, my uh, my current uh, um, occupation, I'm spending uh, most most of my time as the uh, uh, director of Western Growers Center uh, for Innovation and Technology which is lo located in Salinas. Fundamentally, I'm just a salesman married to a farmer's daughter. And so if you're looking for recipes, and I remain, um, I remain distraught to this day that as a uh, radicchio grower, some, somehow kale got the best of us. I think that's wrong. I'm still upset about it. And, uh, but th the way red will become the new green is when radicchio leads the uh, uh, charge towards hot salads. So the recipe I would, would uh, throw out is sauteed radicchio, little balsamic, bacon, and gorgonzola. You throw in red onions and mushrooms to boot if you would like. Uh, so you do that for starters as a base. So, so eventually hot salads will catch up with uh, you know, the more familiar chilled salad. And, and then radicchio will overtake kale. <laughs> Which, by the way, I must add, also has bad mouthfeel. I don't care how many, uh, I don't care what you think of the nutrient value, bad mouthfeel. Because someone is actually telling me en endive is the next kale. Endive, I'm sorry. Endive is the next kale, but. Well. <laughs> on That's Rich Collins. No, 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 no. But there's a difference between endive and endive, so. Uh, and it, anyway. One day, Chicory's star will rise, you know, so. Because it does uh, seem circular. It seems like it was spinach, then kale, and now it's Radicchio's turn, perhaps? Well, that's what he says. In terms, that's yeah, what that's, says. that's what I say. What do I know? Okay. I'm saying. <laughs> but, but actually, Brussels sprouts are really uh, ha having their way with everybody right now. So true. It's, that is it's true. It's so still a Brussels sprout moment. Enjoying the Brussels sprouts. Well, we'll see what the hot vegetable, hot salad is of 2018. But that sounds good. <laughs> so I, w I always like to start with the chronological order, uh, the chronological question in terms of how you got to where you are today. So Mary, I, uh, you know, I obviously I did research on both panelists. I saw that you grew up in a on a farm in Yolo County, and so obviously you you grew up on a farm. And I was curious about how that experience led you to where your current position is today. Was it a, a straight shot, a zigzag? Uh, how did you get to Center for Land-Based Learning? Yeah, I grew up on a small farm. My, my uh, parents were the beginning farmers of their era in the early 70s, the back to the landers in that era from coming from the Bay Area, Berkeley and Orinda. And my dad was the one who really wanted to be a farmer, wanted to live on the land, uh, had grown up also working on cattle ranches up in Modoc County for the majority of his summers. My mom was just along for the ride, had absolutely no idea what she was getting herself into. Uh, and so they bought a, a piece of property, 20 acres in Yolo County, um, near the town of Yolo. Yes, there is a town of Yolo. It's not just the county of Yolo. It's, there's also a town, small one. Where, where is the town of Yolo? I didn't even know that. Yeah, Yolo is just north of Woodland, about, uh, right off of I-5, uh, about another five miles north of Woodland. Um, right on Cash Creek. So we bought a very cheap, uh, my, my parents bought a very uh, inexpensive piece of land because that's all they could afford. And it was actually um, a piece of land that had been dug out uh, to use, the soil has been, had been used to create 
the overpasses for I-5. So it was um, obviously pretty, <laughs> not great soil, very, very uh, heavy clay. And they'd spent a good 10 years in just trying to develop the soil um, for, to, to be able to produce uh, crops. So what they were able to do, though, is, is have livestock from an early age. So we had hogs, uh, and then we moved on to poultry, and my parents were kind of in that early generation along with full belly. Um, it makes me laugh when we're talking about full belly being the longest, because I remember I worked for full belly for uh, multiple summers before they became full belly and moved to, to up to Cape Bay Valley, um, going to the farmer's market under the under the freeway here in Sacramento and helping them sell. Um, but they, you know, they were selling, in this case, eggs. My parents had a, a farm that was uh, egg production and at the time was called, uh, the, the term was really free range and now it's more on the, you know, pastured poultry. But we had about 3,000 laying hens and those were all in open uh, barns and then went out onto pasture for the rest of the, most of the day. So that was the beginning of my experience really also with um, how difficult it is to be a beginning farmer. How difficult it is when you uh, don't have the resources that you did not grow up, uh, you know, they did not grow up on a farm. They did not grow up with that kind of ability to tap into, um, you know, many years before them of their family and those resources. And to, be, to develop new markets. Everybody at that time was developing new markets. And uh, really, with there was only about from here to Humboldt to Arcata and San Francisco, believe it or not, in that era between the kind of the early to late 80s, there was really only about 10 to 20 places where they were selling directly. And that included here, the SAC Natural Foods Co-op, Davis Food Co-op, you know, Arcata, uh, Humboldt, Grass Valley, that kind of thing. Very few restaurants. So it's like, where do you sell, right? So I think that was the, the beginnings, really, of, of where what has led to me today. Yes, I was in, was in agriculture from kind of the beginnings of my life all the way to today. But in terms of how it's connected now to Center for Land-Based Learning, um, I was the first employee in, in 1998, um, and really at the time we were focusing on youth education, on high school education. I'd always been interested in that because I was in 4-H and FFA and very much appreciated and loved um, those experiences, the ability to be out and to be doing hands-on experience, and so I knew the value of that but I didn't really want to work in the classroom. So Center for Land-Based Learning was this great marriage, really, of the ability to work in informal education in, in agriculture, getting students out onto the farms and ranches, learning about agriculture, learning about everything from the seasons to where their food comes from, getting to know farmers, right? Just that experience, most of the students we work with are from urban areas, never been on farms. And then moving over the years into the beginning farmer training aspect. So it took a while to get to kind of back to where I started from, but I think it always had been in the back of my mind in terms of ways to help be new farmers get their start. And, and Dennis came on my radar because I I was at an event at UC Davis, uh, I think last year, in terms of ag tech, ag technology or ag tech for short, and the current mayor, Salinas, was there. And he was talking about how Salinas is a major ag tech city. There's that 
Silicon Valley is coming to Salinas Valley and bringing money and technological expertise. And Dennis used to be the mayor of Salinas. He, you grew up there, not on a farm, but I thought it was interesting, your background, you did work in Silicon Valley, I think Atari, which for, I don't know how old you are, but Pong was a big deal, and then you came back. So it seems like this ag tech um, push from Salinas may have started with you, or you were on board getting Salinas to be a, an ag tech innovator? So I wanted to hear about that. Okay. Uh, well, you know, in the, in the Salinas Valley, and probably not uh, atypical of that, uh, other valleys, you know, in the ag deal, uh, you either you either, you you either grow up in it or you often marry into it. So I happened to uh, marry a farmer's daughter. Um, I had moved to Salinas when I was three, but because I married a farmer's daughter, it then officially becomes my hometown. You're you're a native son. Had that not happened. Then, then I would be subject to you're not from around here. So, uh, so I, uh, uh, and you know, marrying into a, f a farming family, you know, the growing side of it sized it up pretty quickly. You go do unskilled labor. You go sell on market. We'll we'll handle the growing. So uh, I've uh, w been in the deal since the late 1980s. Worked with uh, Fresh Express, the old Fresh Western, which is now Church Brothers. Uh, but was was always involved in something new. So in the late 80s, the fresh cut revolution was was happening. In the mid 90s, uh, were the early efforts around uh, uh, packaged fresh cut fruit. Uh, and in fact, one of my favorite projects was with something called Grape Escape, destemmed grapes, uh, which we introduced at Wrigley Field for the for the Cubs. That they weren't winning games, so they thought they could distract people. But let's eat more healthy. Uh, you know, I don't think that worked particularly well, but it was it was fun to go to Wrigley Field and meet Harry Carey, and uh, so uh, I um, um, spent a number of years in, in the ag deal. Moved mo uh, had the chance to really travel throughout the world. Ended up uh, running Royal Rose, which is a specialty vegetable grower shipper. But along with that, I uh, just you know my hobby was my community, and uh, so I. Uh, uh, I, I was actually an accidental mayor, and uh, I always tell people there are three stories how I became mayor. One of them is actually true. Depends on the audience. And, uh, but as mayor, um, Salinas is a, because of the technicality of its borders, even though there's a lot of wealth in Monterey County, is technically a, a, fa a fairly poor city. It's really resource constrained. So, so I just had a very simple thought. Let's rub the two sticks together of the Salinas Valley and the Silicon Valley, and see where that takes us. And uh, so the, uh, you know, Salinas, uh, and I still have the binder. You could look it up. November 2007, we introduced AgTech and that dialogue um, to to the world. That that said, a lot of a lot of people have to have to make that happen. But we we really begin that discussion in 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 Salinas. So. Um, so I was the mayor from 2006 to uh, 2012, and uh, we we really we worked hard as a community to try and make some connections with the Silicon Valley and, re and really explore where where that could take us. And uh, uh, and I'm and and Salinas is very very fortunate that the, the current mayor felt very very strongly in terms of what it represented for for the community and and has has done a great job. Uh, in fact, he's was representing Salinas at, uh, in New York City at the Forbes uh, uh, Summit yesterday where they announced they'll be returning for the fourth time to, 
to uh, Salinas this, this summer. So, uh, so I've been involved in ag tech, or what's you know what's framed as ag tech, from from day one. I started out as a mayor, but then as I, after I left office and, and returned to the industry, I, I stayed involved in terms of a number of community activities. And then when Western Growers, uh, uh, as a as a group. Um, decided that they wanted to make a commitment to technology and innovation as a strategy to solve some of the challenges that uh, uh, that California agriculture, California and Arizona agriculture uh, face. Um, and the physical manifestation of that was the Innovation Center in, in Salinas, where you can uh, ho hopefully develop uh, young companies. But we look for solutions all over the world. So we have companies that uh, New Zealand, Israel, we're, we're solution oriented and the whole focus is how do we uh, rapidly commercialize uh, solutions that the industry faces because our, uh, our, our challenges, uh, our, the sense of urgency around a number of key issues is, is really increasing and we, we think innovation and technology is uh, one of the ways home. So, so I've been involved in it from a couple, couple different sides but on a continuous basis really for the last decade. Great. You know, I just forgot to mention, um, I guess the podcast people have to hear this too. I uh, forgot to mention we're having a raffle after the event. So if Scott, one of my board of members, director was smart, he gave you all a white raffle ticket. Okay, good. Where we'll be doing the raffle afterwards. So I just forgot to mention that there. Um, why I asked you both about your, your background is because this, this does play into now that the, the the heart of the discussion in terms of, you know, getting farmers, you know, off their feet and onto the ground and 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 keeping uh, going, and then how technology plays a big role in keeping ag going as well. So there's the the human aspect and the technological aspect. So now my questions are more specific about that. So with you, Mary, I wanted to ask specifically about the programs that the Center for Land-Based Learning has. There's the youth programs, the adult programs. What's going on? And I guess who are some of the notable graduates or people that you've seen uh, go through these programs and, and what have been the results? So on the youth side, yeah, we've been running the youth programs for high school students since 1993. So we're approaching our 25th year of youth programming, and those, those programs range from Tehama County in the north to Kern County in the south, along the central coast, north coast, and even down into Southern California. So we're reaching students, high school students in 27 counties. Uh, and those programs are really focused on experiences, uh, exploration, and especially around career exploration in agriculture. Um, because, and this is an issue that has continued to grow even since I've been a part of the organization since 98, that for every uh, one graduate of College of Ag and Environmental Sciences around the country today, there are three jobs. So we have a huge challenge in the agricultural, environmental science, natural resource space, and that is we need more people. And the kinds of jobs, which Dennis will talk about, I'm sure, have really also changed a great deal. So while we have 1.8% of our population are farmers, there's a whole lot of other people that are needed to get that not just the production side and all of the other things that on the technological side to continue to improve production, to continue to do so in an environmentally friendly way, to continue to work on things like climate change, 
plant breeding, all of these other issues, as well as getting the food from the farm, right, all the way through the system and to the fork and beyond the fork. I mean, all now there's all of these uh, incredible programs around food waste and how do we work on you know, reducing food waste and what kinds of ways and innovative ways can we do that? I mean, the kinds of jobs you look on, comf, you know, look on good food jobs, the kinds of jobs out there today in agriculture and food have completely changed in the last 10 years. And the majority of people don't have any experience with agriculture. So that's where our youth programs really come into play is that general just exploring the opportunities. And then we continue to move them through, so to speak, a pathway uh, to those jobs. Of course, not everybody is going to end up in a job in ag and food, environmental science, but we hope to introduce more people to it and then help shepherd them through that process. And even if they don't end up in, in a job, they certainly have a lot more understanding of the issues that are out there, right? So that's the, the youth side. And then the California Farm Academy, which we launched seven years ago, again, really focused on the beginning farmer aspect, is all around that issue of where are the next generation of farmers going to come from. And not just farmers, but farm managers. So we tend to forget the fact that, yes, there's the farm owner, the owner operator, but then there's all of these other pieces of the farmscape that are so critical. And the larger the farm is, but even, you know, even smaller farms need farm managers. And those farm managers have to be so much more versed today in, especially in California, the regulatory climate and, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit more in the fu in future questions, but like with food sa with food safety, with issues around um, groundwater management, with issues around irrigation, and how how we are doing that, how are we modeling um, best practices? What are we, how are we talking to the consumer? So a farm manager today. In 2017, the skills they need are very, very different than the skills that were needed in 1970, in 1980, and 19, you know. And we are talking about farm managers, just like farmers that are in that 58 plus years old category. And I think all of us would agree that we all want to have farmers and farm managers that are as knowledgeable about these issues as possible and that can continue to you know, focus on the sustainability and agriculture for the future. So that's what our role is with the California Farm Academy is to help train that next generation of farmers and then continue to incubate them, train, uh, continue training, uh, continue providing resources and networks and connections to markets, all of those things that my parents did not have in 1982. There was nobody helping them except for some other local farmers in the area who they banded together with, like Full Belly, like Good Humus, to do it together because there was nobody else. So who is, there are luckily a lot of other organizations out there today across the country, but still not that many, given the fact that we all eat and we have issues here, you know, with, with our, obviously from an environmental perspective, but just in general producing food for not just our, our population today, but our population for the future. And we provide a lot of food for a lot of other people in the United States and around the world. So 
we want to be the best. We this California wants to be the best in all of those things. So we need to have the farmers and the farm managers to be able to do that. So that's our role from a training perspective, from an educational perspective, and from a you know really focusing in on providing those those kinds of people into our community here in the Sacramento region and beyond. Because it seems like you have programs throughout the Central Valley. I should ask about the local aspect, because I see a lot of uh, articles written about what you're doing in, in West Sac. And I, I should mention, when I was promoting this event, I know one of the farmers who has gone through the apprenticeship program and has, I guess, an eighth of an acre uh, in your um, uh, patch of land near West Sacramento. So I just wanted to see, for those who don't know, there is the, the very hyper-local aspect do you do here in Sacramento? Yeah, so that's part of our incubator program. So going back to the, what are some of those things that new farmers need? Well, the biggest challenges to getting into farming in California or really anywhere are access to land and access to capital. So we are, one of the roles that the California Farm Academy has is providing those two things, access to land and access to capital. And in the access to capital side, we really focus in on a network of partners that we help our beginning farmers connect to. When you are trying any new company, but especially a farming new farm, you need at least three years of of profit and loss statements before you can go in and get any kind of a regular commercial loan, okay? So how are you going to finance a farm? You're gonna go to your family, you're gonna use your credit cards, you're gonna use a lot of other things that usually are not particularly sustainable. And so the incubator program is a way to provide that access and then, the, and then at a low cost, um, very low cost way, also access to the infrastructure, access to equipment, access to supplies at a lower cost that help to keep those, those costs to the farmer down. So that's part of what the West Sacramento Urban Farm Program is all about, is especially folks who want to do urban agriculture and that want to uh, try it out, right? So it's all about trying something, experimenting, making sure that you're not really screwing up and causing yourself to go into debt for years and years and years, we don't want anybody to have to experience that. So we're kind of incubating folks through that period of their experimentation phase, right? So that's like, you're, I think you're talking about Ruby. So Ruby Simonson with First Mother Farms at our one of our fifth, our fifth and C farm in West Sacramento. Small scale, local, hyper-local uh, farms for them to get started, for them to start learning what they need to learn for the future. And we, the whole goal is to not have them there forever. The goal is for them to fly away. <laughs> like Hardy Fork Farm, um, Hardy Fork, Jay Cuff. Yay, we love Hardy Fork. Um, so he was an incubator farmer with us at the, far, at the farm on Poudre Creek in Winters for three years and then flew away. We, we uh, introduced him to Rich Collins and, and um, Cloverleaf Farm location and he was able to pr get a lease there and grow, scale up and continue to, to uh, be able to do this on a you know, 100, you know, full, full time, time basis. So that's the other part of the key. Yes, because Ruby mentioned, I think there was a story written about her full, First Mother Farms, where she was working for a nonprofit 
a, a desk job and trying this out, but then she quit the job and now I, I'm not sure if it's full time, but she's doing more consulting in in the ag, and she's very happy and very excited about it. So, so on the technology side, um, I guess we should explain Western Growers is I don't know for lack of a better word a lobbying group. Okay, no, Western Growers represents growers not only in California but Arizona, the states surrounding it, and they have this center in Salinas that you started. I guess what two years ago, more or less, Dennis? Uh, was that when it? Yeah, we're got we're, it ju start? we're just making the turn on two years. What West Western Growers? Uh, if you're in the in the ag deal, and I'm uh, from a, putting my Royal Rose hat back on, I'm a Western Growers member. Typically, we're going to belong to a number of different trade groups, uh, like the Produce Marketing Association, United, which is a little bit more on the on the supply side. But Western Growers uh, has some 2,500 plus members representing really the production side, fresh processing side, California, Arizona, recently Colorado, and we threw in for good measure the Chili Pepper Association in New Mexico, which apparently is the only organized ag in New Mexico. Uh, but it, <laughs> and it does spice things up a little bit. But that group uh, represents 50 plus percent of North America's fresh fruit and nut production, and most are year-round suppliers. So we, we tend to think uh, a little bit more on a, on a scale, scale basis, uh, and, we're operate, and we're the year-round marketeers uh, where you're going to see brands. You know, I saw my good friend's organic girl have the, the salad business down, downstairs. So these are year-round folks. In order to get that job done to be a year-round supplier, uh, our folks are operating in 32 states and 30 countries. So even little old radicchio, I've uh, been involved in growing in Chile, Mexico, Quebec, Florida, uh, two, two tours in Okinawa, and uh, to, uh, uh, so, because radicchio is an oddly global boutique crop, the most prominent food brand on the planet is Italian, so radicchio follows that, and uh, so, uh, we we do look at the world from um, fr from a from a slightly different basis on a, on a from from a scale standpoint. That that said, we have a good good mix of of growers uh, representing. And the thing about California, so we're the specialty crop crowd. We are not doing we're not the kids in the Midwest who are doing wheat and grain. That's not our deal. Specialty crops definition and not subsidized. So this is the group that is taking the crop risks making the capital expenditures. And I, and I, want, and I want to quickly throw in um, that the city of Salinas was a good partner. But, but our industry, and I often, you know, folks talk about farmers sometimes being really, really conservative. I, I've been out in the fields. There are no more horses pulling blouse. Uh, farmers, uh, by nature, like to try things. Perhaps at best, they're aggressive incrementalists. Because you know you've got you've got you've got to you've got to prove prove the point. But the reality is we have a great history of innovation in our industry uh, around the the product, whether it, it's seed, whether it's vacuum cooling, taking care of the product. And now that we're having production-related problems, now you're starting to uh, see a shift to uh, you know we've been great on the post-harvest side, but now we're the pre-harvest side, and so so now so now you're seeing a shift in innovation around that. So so far, farmers in the ag community are technical by nature, innovative by nature, though though sometimes the enemy of the good is good enough. 
if, if, you know, for instance, everybody's talking about drones, talking about drones, talking about drones, but the financial modeling is not necessarily clear. So for instance, even in good old Monterey County where there's a lot of activity uh, in terms of ag tech, you know, we're still really frankly at, at the very, very early stages of wholesale adoption. Uh, and you know, one of the things that uh, has, has been challenging is ag tech doesn't really meet a lot of the traditional venture capital models in terms of how fast you get a return. Uh, beca because go back to what I said, aggressive incrementalists, uh, we might try something for a p small plot this year, but then you have to do it next year if it's an outdoors thing. The, the weather changes, so your proof of concepts take, tend to take longer. You have to build seasonality into to things. So, uh, so, so the innovation process uh, typically is going gonna, is gonna to go a little slower. The scaling process, the adoption process is going to go uh, a little slower. There, there's no question the revolution is, is underway, but uh, we're, we're at the early stages. So that's where the Center for Technology and Innovation comes in. And I wanted to ask specifically about that because um, when Western Growers sent me information about the center, which has been around for about two years, sounds like it's been going gangbusters. You have a lot of startups, they've gotten a fair amount of venture capital. And I was curious about what's, what specifically are you looking for who comes into the center? What kind of startups start there? And what are, I guess, in terms of graduates? Sure. Well, who have you seen? The, the, the quick fast facts in two years, we started out with six companies. Now we're just at 50 plus. Delighted with that. They've raised uh, over 25, these companies have raised over $25 million. We, we actually, we were kind of startled by this. We did some polling in terms of, because fundamentally a lot of people come to us, as you might imagine, for market access and grower connectivity. So these, these 50 companies have had interaction with some uh, you know, 4,000 plus, plus growers, and, uh, and they've created a, a couple hundred jobs. So those, those are the fast facts. What we're looking for when Western growers got together from a macro standpoint, the APB to the outside world, is here, here are our three big challenges. Food safety, but you know, I mean, I, I, I still remember the E. coli days from 2006. Uh, so we've always been good at food safety. It's just what's the focus? Uh, you know, that's now it's a lot of pathogens uh, in the field, et cetera. But fundamentally, the holy grail is a kill step. Automation is an issue, uh, and that has turned into a house on fire. And then a couple years ago, as you might imagine, water was an issue as it related to supply and quality. Supply is really much more a function of policy and infrastructure. Quality is a science issue. And what water has really turned into, in my view, is where all things precision ag and big data gather in terms of how you keep score, whether it's managing nitrates, efficiencies on the ranch, accounting to the government, accounting to large, large customers. So those are the things we look for, but our activities and our companies are not limited to that. There's a lot of productivity tools, alternative energy, um, data plays, et, et cetera. So, that's, that's kind of, so we kind of cover the whole spectrum of what's considered uh, ag, ag tech related. We have a real, real focus right now on the automation thing. And so the, we've been strategically reaching out to some, some of the uh, 
the robotics teams that are out there that are, that are small customers because we know this automation enhanced mechanization issue. Uh, li like I say, it is, it is literally a house on fire. We're, we're going to need a moonshot and a, and a really organized industry initiative to, to accelerate progress in that area. And I'll just, just chime in here. We were at a conference last week, um, North State Innovations uh, Conference in Orland, the booming metropolis of Orland. And it was awesome. Where uh, is Orland? Orland. For those who don't know. <laughs> it's we were at the Glen County Fairgrounds. Glen County Fairgrounds. Uh, yes. And I believe it's bigger than YOLO. It is bigger than YOLO. Okay, just, just, I just wanted I to point that out. Okay. Yeah. They have hotels there. Um, but the the incredible thing, he's he brought, Dennis brought a group of, of innovators. There were six of them, I believe, from um, his center. And none of them came from agriculture at all. Most of them were from very urban backgrounds and from around the world. And they were doing some incredible, incredibly innovative things in, 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 from a technology perspective for agriculture. That's a lot of things people just don't understand about where agriculture is today. There is way more science and more technology in agriculture than probably any other industry. Um, because things are rapidly changing, because there are these opportunities with environmental challenges, with, with labor, okay, so his whole focus on robotics, what he's talking about, that's all because of labor. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, some more. But I was just really um, taken by those six folks in terms of where they came from, what their experience was, and really why they were in agriculture. Why, and they were asking for, they don't have the connection to agriculture, so they're saying, "Can you? we'd like to be out on your farm. We'd like to see if these things that we're creating actually work. And you know, so it's this really interesting time, I think, to be in the field. Well, I was just at a conference yesterday, and we, we thought this was unique to ag, but apparently it's just indigenous to the Silicon Valley. They like, they like to create technology and, and then look for a customer, you know, when, when, but this issue of connecting ag and tech, you know, we, we, I did an event uh, several months ago and I said, you know, we have coffee shops in Salinas. It was a tech crowd. And I said, and we talk about you guys. And one of the things we keep wondering is why do you keep designing technology f uh, and, pr f and for problems I didn't know I had? Uh, you know, so, th so this issue of really getting together, you know, big things happen around specifics, not generalities. And so that's really what we're trying to get, get done in the center, make, make that connectivity. Because the issues of, uh, of automation, and, and, and I do have to hasten to add, you, you know, th the reality is we've got an aging, disappearing workforce for a lot of reasons. The, the interesting thing about automation and this is why what Mary does is so so important, is it's really going to stand up what the president of IBM likes to call a new collar economy. So these are going to be better paying jobs, more skills. So if you think the farm manager needs to know stuff, tr trust me when I tell you when you replace a weeding crew with R2D2, but then you have the supervisor who's got to deploy all of those, keep track, understand his spreadsheet. You know, that's, that's a new kind of manager, that's a new job. One of my favorite uh, uh, conversations of a couple weeks ago was somebody made the conversation, he says, you know, we're, we either talk to everybody who's either all ag or all tech. We're gonna need a new kind of worker. Who's going to do that? 
Who's going to bring that together? How does that process start? So at that same conference, you know, the Secretary of Ag California, Karen Ross, said, hey, Ag, concentrate on workforce development. You know, that's not necessarily music to our ears because we'd rather like, okay, good, we figured out the immigration deal and off we go. But the reality is we are going to have to settle in and really do that hard, specific work of workforce development, training up the, the folks who are here, which also, as they're aging, extends their work life. But then we've got to do what Mary's doing is got to start them young. So I have, a, I have a couple questions and then uh, I'm going to open it up to audience Q&A. But I was wondering in terms of a visualization of what a farm looks like today, because it obviously is different from when Mary grew up on the farm. But what does a farm look like in terms of the technology used or the, the gadgets they use? You know, what are some notable things that at least farms in California are uh, changing to to monitor crops or uh, grow them robotics or you know uh, just what's just some visualizations that if for someone like me who didn't grow up on a farm this is a 21st century type of farm are there any examples Mary? well it really depends too right I mean every farm and every farmer has their own idiosyncrasies their own things they want to do their own goals I mean I think that's the great thing about farming is that you've got such a wide variety of different people that are farmers. Uh, and by the way, lots more women now. Uh, the majority now of beginning farmers are women. Uh, and we've, that we've been seeing that growth for quite some time, but it's finally showing up really uh, in ag the ag census numbers as well as minorities, much more minorities uh, as well in the beginning farmer numbers. But in terms of what it looks like from a technology standpoint, I'll, I'll, I'll let Dennis uh, talk to that um, more because he's probably got more specific examples. But I know what I've seen, and again, I grew up in agriculture here in Yolo County, and I have all kinds of friends and colleagues that are farmers of all different sizes. So everything from the two acres to the, probably the largest farmer friend that I have in Yolo County is 10,000. Uh, and they started as our neighbors down the road the ones that sold us the first hogs to start our operation at probably about 500 acres. And, and there's a question I know about consolidation. And they've, they've grown. It's a family farm. And they've grown a great deal in that 30, 40 years. And they have expanded, gotten a lot, of, a lot more crops that they're growing, a lot more markets that they're growing for, and uh, uh, probably a lot, you know, to a certain extent, especially in the last five years, less labor, more mechanization. Uh, and, and, you know, really, and then, of course, because we work statewide around California, we work with a lot of different farmers, again, throughout the Central Valley that also range in size and technology and style and methodology and vision and values and all that. Um, but I think, you know, one, one thing that stands out to me as an example of how things have changed. So we have a, one of our partners with one of our youth, progr one of our youth programs, Farms Leadership. He, they've been dairy farmers for years and they're ch switching over now to do more um, crops, specifically almonds. And he is like a tech geek. And so this guy, he was like, I want to figure out a way so that I can irrigate my, my almond crop in such a way that I know exactly how much water is going to every single tree, every single mo moment if I wanted to, and I can control it from my computer right here on my desk. And that is happening 
all the time now. So there are sensors, there's all these different kinds of sensors that sometimes can be, you know, now more and more with drone usage and other things that literally monitor every single tree or every single plant that can tell them at any time how much water that tree needs. The side of the tree, is it in the this root zone or this root zone, for how many hours or minutes or whatever it might be, with the fertigation, what levels of fertilizer does it need, and it's all managed by their computer. So again, thinking about all of the different kinds of jobs that go into that. You know, that, that is one example, but it is becoming more and more the norm of the, the ability for farmers to do very, very different things today than they did even five years ago and 10 years ago. Again, there's a wide, wide, wide range, right, out there on farms. Uh, and you'll probably have lots of other examples from a technology perspective, but it is. And, and I'd say the other piece that's really changed is social media. So all kinds of farmers of all sizes are really utilizing social media to tell their story, to be transparent, so that anybody can go and literally see the farm at any time, understand what's going on there, come out to visit, um, all different sizes of farms are doing that, not just smaller farms. So that's another piece, I think, that has, from a technology perspective, has also really changed the way that we interact. So. Let me glibly say I agree with you. Uh, <laughs> and, but, but I think that really, uh, on a wholesale basis, that, that's probably um, the best foundational answer at the moment. I mean, I think if you were to look at a lot of the farming activity, and again, keep in mind, go back to that 400 specialty crops. Now, obviously, there's a weighted average to the you know the top 10 crops in California, uh, or, or or top 20. So so things are really going to, to vary. Uh, I, I, what I would say is the progressive farmers uh, and growing operations. They're, they're a bit of a laboratory and a test bed, and, and nothing has been settled. There's a lot of trial and error, this sensor, that, that sensor, that, that type of thing. There's, there's, no, there's no uniformity. Uh, the, uh, there is a lot of activity around drones, but there's some business, you know, what are the business models? So, you know, technology in a vacuum without the right uh, management team, what's the business model? All those things are still really, I think, uh, being, being settled. You know, on the automation side, um, if, you, if you look in our valley, some of the top crops, you know, the, the, uh, uh, probably the best example of, you know, rather than full, full wholesale automation, you know, there's the phrase harvest assist. So, you know, Taylor Farms has uh, captured a lot of attention properly so with their uh, their romaine harvesting operations that where you were able to go uh, through you know through their water jet system and and you're able to, and it's a bet it's a better play for the workers they're able to be more upright better working conditions and they're able to go from 20 a crew of 24 to 12 you know that that type of thing so you're seeing a lot of incremental progress around uh, around field harvesting right now we kind of consider that the holy grail uh, another uh, Tanamir and Anil is getting a lot of attention with their plant tape uh, uh, venture that is that disruptive to tr transplanting. Uh, so uh, I, I think 
what I would what I would really say is, you know, capturing data, making making use of the data. Though you will kind of almost hear to a person, I. I don't know what I'm going to do with all of this data. I thought technology was supposed to simplify my life, and it seems to be complicating. Or in the words of one, one grower, he, as he so eloquently said, hey, can you get me out of Excel hell, please? Uh, so whoever solves that, uh, you know, that, that's going to be a nice opportunity. But I think I would categorize it's very early. There's a lot of activity. Nothing settled. It's, it's a work in progress and a lot of trial and error. But uh, where you can have connectivity, you know, for instance, we have a company, Waxis is working closely with PG&E and monitor, monitoring energy. That, that, you know, so to begin to see those sorts of relationships where you have a major company creating platforms for startups, that, that's interesting. We're, we're excited that AT&T has just become a sponsor uh, because this whole issue of connectivity, you're not going to be able to execute an Internet of Things strategy and, and, unless, unless you're connected. So a lot of it's trial and error, getting infrastructure in place, and uh, incremental gains. Yeah, I was just going to bring up the issue with connectivity, actually. So what a lot of people also don't know is that the majority of areas where we grow in, in agriculture in California don't have good broadband coverage, if at all. For example, one of our, one of our board members who's in Calusa County Grows about 2,000 acres, half conventional, half organic. And I hate the word conventional. But anyway, organic and conventional. He's still on dial-up, folks. Okay? So while we can talk here about innovation and technology and all these great things out there, the majority of a big chunk of California doesn't have that access. And until that happens... You know, a lot of our farmers are at a disadvantage. I was talking to another farmer the other day that has to go into Starbucks in town to download all of his drone data so that he can then, you know, take a look at it and take, use that information to then make those uh, important decisions, you know, with regards to, you know, management decisions. Go, go to Starbucks in town. He can't even do it at his own farm. So Comstock's had a recent article uh, earlier this year that talked about that issue right here in the Sacramento region and just across the Sacramento River in Clarksburg, Muddy Boot Wine, a bunch of other folks were a part of that article. Like, here's what we want to do, but here's what our reality is. So I think a lot of people, they, they're in their places and they have their incredible amount of access and they don't realize that not everybody has that ability and so just kind of keep that in mind as well when we're talking about these technology technology challenges and things we want to do and what we're limited by as well and and i have one question more before i'm going to open up the mic to uh all of your questions I feel like one thing that all the farmers in California have is a concern about how climate change is, is changing things up. Because we had a drought for how many years? Four? And then the atmospheric river uh, winter. So it seems like this is a new reality where you just have to figure out, if you can, how the weather is going to change and climate change is going to change how you grow. So based on what you're seeing through your organizations, uh, you know, how are farmers preparing for the ups and downs in, in the weather patterns, climate change? Can they? You know, are they, are they changing up different crops for others that will be more uh, 
well easier to grow because you can you can handle it. Uh, technology. What are what are you seeing in terms of climate change for the ag industry in California? Who wants to start, Dennis? Well, there's a. It, it it depends on the crop and and where you sit. So, for instance, if you if you look at the lettuce industry, 50% of it ends up in a box and is on its way to retail or food service, but 50 cent 50% of it ends up get cut cut in a bag. And the and the reality is, the value added business is regional by by nature. Uh, and so, if if you have concerns about supply, rising costs changing transportation and logistics issues, uh, there's a good chance you're, gonna, you're going to look for other areas to grow. Uh, so you're starting, so one of the things that was underway over the last couple years for a variety of reasons is you're starting to see more East Coast deals. So for instance, the, the Italian group that I'm affiliated with is involved in a joint venture uh, on uh, baby leaf product under protected tunnels on the Florida Georgia line with with the idea that if 70% of the population is uh, east, east of the Mississippi you're, you're closer it's a tighter window but in California we're used to moving around the state we're based in Salinas but we operate like I said all throughout throughout the country you, you start to see things like if, if Huron and Fresno County don't have water, depending upon who does and doesn't, then what you try and do uh, is if you have to skip that area, you're going you're gonna to try and get down to the desert sooner. And then you're, so for instance, the desert has multiple mi microclimates. You're going to look and see if you've got ground you know, to the east of Yuma that's a little cooler and work your way in. So it's going to change your growing patterns, where you grow. It's not necessarily going to change what and it, you know, a grower who's doing multiple items might decrease on one, expand on the other. But if you're a, a landowner or controlling ground, one of the things we've seen in Salinas is in South Monterey County, you'll you'll see the carrot guys and the pepper folks come over from the Central Valley. So you'll see, so you'll see a changing crop mix per se. Uh, but individual growers, their their expertise tends to be their expertise. Uh, and if they move it around, they'll, they'll either move it around within however the market responds. So, so I, I, I would say that, uh, uh, and then the, the, the last thing, because in Monterey County, we, we count on, we, we agree, we like Mark Twain. We like the predictability of the coldest uh, winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco, which is also in Salinas and Monterey County. We count on the fog. And when that doesn't happen and we have more heat events, we don't like that. We, we don't like 85 and no, no fog. We like fog. So what do you do? Well, what you do is you have to get smarter and rely on your data and, you're, and, and you eventually accept, hmm, this appears to be a pattern we need to now live with. So, because we all kind of live off of uh, our planning schedules and what, we, you know, what dates are the dates you plan and what are your days to harvest. So you have to begin to make some make some adjustments and you you know so now you start to hear growers talk about better forecasting tools how can, how can you see what's coming and that sort of thing so it forces you to alter uh, your day-to-day -day, your planning schedules uh, I, I um, uh, and and so the, so you know it, it's it's difficult to see several months out uh, 
you know, f farmers are kind of stubborn. I still remember when, you know, because I rely on, yeah, no, barely. I still remember because I keep waiting for Quebec because they, they started growing radicchio and that was wrong. It was supposed to be just a California market so we could, and it froze in September. That was good. They, they lost their crop early. I kept thinking year after year that would keep happening. That was the anomaly, and I was I was wrong. But but my point is, growers have a tendency to, okay, it's it's going to get back to normal. It's going to get back to normal. It's like, oh, this is different. We've got to start responding to this. So they're they're starting to. Yeah, well, they have been for some time, and the answer is you're basically going to move 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 where you grow. You know, land-based growers and who are commodity oriented. Uh, are, are typically going to stay on their land. But the thing to remember about California, and one of the things that makes California agriculture so great is there are a lot of innovators out here. And so they're in the market year-round. Year and, you know, you can add value to lettuce in a bag in North Carolina just as easily as you can here. You know, so they're, so they're, they're going to move growing operations. Uh, that we, we now grow more in, in Mexico, partially, and that, and that, frankly, is a weather hedge. Because we, we don't view the desert as predictable as it used to be, that, that type of thing. Mary, what are you seeing from your point of view in terms of, I guess, how are there any crops that are changing? They're like, well, let's do less water-intensive crops and focus more on drought-resistant crops or heat-tolerant crops. Or is there a shift for that now, or that's not uh, a well, big deal? Well, I think, in general, California has been, uh, growers have been working on reducing their water use for a very long time. Um, that is an expense. You know, if you are a farmer at any, at any size, you are focused on, right, like any other business, you're focusing on where your income is, which markets are, and what your expenses are. And if your biggest expenses are things like labor, of course, and water, uh, whether you're using groundwater, whether you're using surface water, it doesn't really matter. It's still an expense. Uh, and the more that you can reduce that, the better. So that goes back to my earlier dis my example of, of farmers who, I mean, the, 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 num the reduction in water use per acre, I, I, unfortunately, I don't remember the, I'm not good at remembering all the percentages, but in the last 20 years has been, it's been, it's reduced by about 30%. So my part of that is because we've gone to mostly drip and micro drip. The interesting thing about that, though, I mean, I always like to think about agriculture um, holistically, and and the problem, one of the problems with going to drip. I mean, just think about this: if you are, if you're a bird, if you're some kind of wildlife, where are you going to get your water? In the past, if you flood irrigated or you furrow irrigated, there was all these places out there for wildlife to get their water. And you go out today now with, in places where it's all under drip, and there is no water for any kind of animal, guys. I mean, it is, it, it's just shocking, right? It is like, is that what we want? Well, that is what we've been told that everybody wants, is less water use. And, and we, as farmers, from, from their perspective, are saying we want to use less water because of the expense. But it has this very different kind of effect on the rest of the community, so to speak. And it's a, it's a very different look. It, 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 to me, it's not particularly harmonious. It's not, to me, I don't like to go out to farmland that's all under drip. 
It's just an interesting, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, another one to think about, and, and this isn't particularly under the climate change question, but is alfalfa. I have, I have had these conversations with people, like alfalfa is the worst crop in the world. It uses so much water. It doesn't do anything. We're feeding it to horses, you know. And I'm like, okay, let's think about alfalfa a little bit. What is alfalfa? First of all, alfalfa is a leguminous crop. Legume, meaning that it fixes nitrogen. 80% of our air is in nitrogen, but we can't use it. Plants can't use it. It has to be fixed by a bacteria, but literally, that's in a nodule on the root of a legume. So that alfalfa is fixing nitrogen out of the air naturally, we're not having to add nitrogen in that's synthetic, it is providing these wonderful little pathways down for water as, as, as we get those atmospheric rivers. There's a cover on the soil that is allowing that water to infiltrate down into our groundwater, into our aquifers. It is allowing for habitat for birds and a lot of other species for the entire year. You know, not and a lot of times in the wintertime, you'll see out here bare dirt because that's, you know, cheaper, right? So alfalfa provides all, that's just, that's just like three or four benefits of alfalfa, and there's a lot more. So I always find that when we think about things in a, in a silo, like if we only think about water use, we're missing a whole lot of other pieces to the puzzle because that is a, the ecosystem out there is very, very complicated. And so when we only think about something in, in from a water use perspective, we miss some of these other benefits. From a, from a climate change perspective, look, it, it is extremely complicated. And I think all kinds of farmers are doing their absolute best to kind of deal with changes in climate. Um, the bigger farmers, they can move. They can find other growing regions. Smaller farmers can't, you know? So again, when you think about who does it impact more, it's usually gonna impact a smaller farmer more than it's gonna impact the larger farmer, usually. Um, do we rely on plant breeding? Absolutely. Another f a kind of a funny story I think of is one of our early um, graduates from the California Farm Academy. He and his brother, he came, they came over from um, the East Coast. They grew up in Massachusetts. His brother was in the California Farm Academy. His bro his, and then one brother is in the Farm Academy. One brother is working for Monsanto in Woodland at the Seminus um, facility, plant breeding, doing plant breeding. And he was trying to, he still is, creating a more drought-resistant garlic plant. Okay, That's what he's doing. And he's been working on it for years, and he's going to continue to work on it for years. And here's his brother who's going to rallies in the Bay Area, you know, anti-Monsanto. And his own brother is like, I'm just trying to create a more drought-resistant garlic plant. So again, think about these things. It's not always about the headlines, you know, that there are companies out there and lots of companies in this region that are working very hard on trying to figure out ways to make these plants more resistant to or more adaptable to climate change. Using traditional plant breeding techniques, yes, they've been sped up with using different kinds of technology, but it's, it's 
traditional plant breeding techniques. It is not a genetically modified organism, and there are lots and lots of companies trying to do that for our farmers every single day. And that, to me, is one of the tools. There's a lot of tools out there for climate change, we hope, um, but that's one of them. So at every event, there's always a good question for the audience. I just always have to prime them by saying I will buy the first person who comes to the mic a drink, beer, wine, kombucha, to inspire people to come. There's got to be. So while the first person comes up to the mic, I'm going to ask a question about, because I know there's got to be someone, um, food safety. Uh, someone, someone who works at the restaurant, the California Restaurant Association, sent me an, uh, an article about... Uh, how the Food Safety Modernization Act goes into play really in January of 2018. And that's basically, there's a lot of concern about food safety. Uh, and this article basically made it sound like it was traced back to um, spinach and Salinas. I guess there was a scare a few years back about uh, spinach and E. coli and we heard about it, yes. So um, in terms of, I guess, government regulations and now this, this Food Safety Modernization Act really kicking in, it sounds like it's a big deal. What does that mean for uh, farmers in California? I mean, is this something they're already adjusted to? What does that mean for us as consumers uh, in terms of price cost or whatever? What do you, what do you see for mm. next year in terms of food safety? Well, in many, in many ways, I mean, the, the, rea the reality is uh, the grower, shipper, processing community, uh, they're, 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 they're set to go. You know, after the E. coli crisis, and, you know, that's a long story, and that should be a novel and a movie in its own. In its own. But the simple fact what is our industry has, had a, had, has done a great job on food safety, and it's shifted over the years. When I first got in the business in the late 80s, we were focused on pesticides as the salad processing industry got going. You hear a lot of conversations about listeria and then what the, the spinach crisis really pathogens in the field. And, and what I was impressed by, and I like to tell people, hey, we, we ain't doing Upton Sinclair in the jungle here in, in, the, in, you know, in the ag industry. We, good, we take very seriously. Uh, Stewards of the land, um, you know, these are multi-generational family farming corporations that, that really take very, very seriously what they do. And, and, there, and really there was an unprecedented industry response and within half a year you had, I think, one of the best examples of a public-private partnership uh, that resulted in the creation of the Leafy Green Marketing Association driven by the industry in cooperation with the California Department of Food and agriculture, and there are a lot of folks, and I'm one of them, that really subscribes to, you know, that served as really kind of the foundation for the Food Safety and Modernization Act. So, so I think in many respects, uh, um, our, our industry has been, um, you know, kind of le lead, leading the charge, um, and 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 prepared to to address it and and all that 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 will in, in, entail. So, but but food food safety is really. Uh, uh, um, front and center with our, our daily operations. And I'll just add, um, it's, yeah, it, so back to the point of where the jobs. So the number one area for new jobs in California and agriculture is in food safety. And there are very few 
uh, universities and colleges around the state that are actually training people to be going into these jobs. So that's one of those like we're behind, you know. So Food Safety Modernization, Modernization Act, what it did really is it shifted the focus on preventative, okay, versus after the fact. Oh no, people got sick. How did this happen? How do you know what do we do about it? So now it's this preventative focus, which I which is which is good. And to your point. California is way far ahead because it started really with leafy greens here in California and obviously the, the industry had a very, very rapid response. Where the challenges are going to be, again, is with the smaller farmers. So the, the kinds of regulation that are going to be starting in early 2018 are going to more adversely impact smaller farmers. The larger you are as a farm, the more you can spread out those ex you know, expenses of things like hiring new staff to do your food safety monitoring. Pretty hard to do when you're a small farm and you, don't, you have yourself or maybe two or three other employees. Who's gonna be doing all of that food safety monitoring that you're now required to do? Not that it's not necessary, not that it's not good, not that we don't need it. Who's going to do it and who's, who's going to be trained to do it? So even within our own South California Farm Academy, one of the things we've done is we've created a whole food safety plan, okay, for our farms. And that takes some serious time. We had to hire somebody to, as a consultant to assist us with creating the food safety plan. And then we got to follow it, of course. We got to monitor it. We're going to have to report on it. So uh, just thinking through all of those pieces. Again, it's not that we don't want food safety. It's not that we don't want to prevent all of those things. But just thinking about the actions that we take as a society and then what are those repercussions, right? It, we don't always think about what does that mean to maybe even the farm that we don't, we don't want to impact. We don't want to impact that farm, but that's what happens when you go to that kind of level. So that's kind of where we are. California is very far ahead. However, there's going to be some significant challenges in the new year. So we got a question from the audience. She's ready. She wants to. All right. Yeah, I, want my, I want my free kombucha. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm just a, I'm just a consumer. <laughs> I'm like a somewhat informed consumer, but you folks are talking about some pretty big macro issues here with which I'm totally or mostly unfamiliar. But um, I do uh, patronize the our biggest farmer's market here every week. And um, so sort of grown to have something of an affection or affinity for the farmers that, that I see. And um, and I, and I do know about the statistics about the problem with uh, most of our farmers being, you know, really of retirement age. And I know one of them who really wants to retire. And, I mean, his kids are sort of on the fence, you know, about whether they want to take over that responsibility, you know, sort of understandably. And so I want to know what, and I, get, and I realize this is a very micro question, but what do I... Tell him. I mean, I know we have the um, uh, program here at, at the co-op to kind of help with land easements. This is an organic grower, and um, you know, what tools can I bring to him to say, let's make this transition a little bit easier? 
So from a succession planning standpoint, yeah, from yeah. him and his kids. So so there's some uh, there's a fair, there's several really great organizations out there in California that that help with this, and one of those is California FarmLink, and they are one of our partners. Uh, they originally were kind of created as a matching organization. So they, you know, for new farmers who wanted to begin farming, paired up with, matched up, so to speak, with retiring farmers who were needing, wanting to get out of the business but didn't want their farms. They, they wanted their farms to still be farms. So it was really this matching service. So you can look it up, California Farm Link. They've expanded a great deal since the beginnings. I think they're about as, as they've been around about as long as Center for Land-Based Learning. So they're about 20, 25 years old. And they've really expanded with, with from their offerings. So they do everything from assisting people in that transition, right? So someone who maybe who's a graduate of the California Farm Academy, for example, that is looking for land and looking for that opportunity to connect up with a farmer and over five to 10 years even have a transition time frame. Be maybe because the children are not interested or maybe you know there's other things, maybe they don't have kids. So there's, that's an example. They also do you know, help with long-term leases. They help with a lot of other things. They help with credit and other kinds of funding opportunities. So that's just one example. But honestly, what you are asking is the hardest question that agriculture in the entire country is grappling with. Um, I recently heard a statistic, and I have been hearing this for a while, but heard it again lately, that 50% of the land in the United States is going to change hands in the next 10 years. 50%, and a big chunk of that is because of that age issue that we're talking about. So how do we want that land to be managed? Who do we want to be managing it? Um, you know, those are hard questions. This is private land. This is not like, you know, we can go in and dictate who we want to be doing it and we're not doing it. But the reality is, is can we find ways uh, in that example of helping people even on a one-on-one -on -one basis? You know, and I think that's great that you're thinking about it. Because oftentimes people don't know those resources that are available to them. And they're like, you know, forget it. I'm just going to sell out. I really, when I talked to him, I really didn't get the sense that he knew. And a lot of times I don't because they're so focused yeah. on producing whatever it is that they're producing. That's their love that they're producing for that farmer's market or whatever. Like, that's their focus. And to think, you know, succession planning is very, very hard for any family. I mean, how many of us are thinking, you know, potentially going through challenges with your own family with regards to with your own parents, or your grandparents? It's a, those are very hard conversations. And it's really hard when it's a farm. And we're getting to the point now where it's like, you know, multiple, there's farms around, uh, friends of mine who have farms that are divided like 35 ways, because there's the aunts, and there's the uncles, and there's the nephews, and, there's, and they're all owners. But then what's the next generation gonna do? And most of those next generations, unfortunately, don't, are not interested in keeping it in farming. So anyway, good so, question. Yeah, and so that 50% of uh, land that's gonna change, who, who are the people or organizations or companies that are gonna get that land? Is it person to person, person to conglomerate? Where do you see that land going to? Well, it's, it's all of the above. Um, and it always has been that. It's just that there's a lot 
of it that's going to be changing. So, I mean, I give you the example earlier of my friends, the family farmers down the road that were 500 acres in the, you know, the late 70s and that are now 10,000. Still a family farm. There, it's all just the family that are involved. Are they a corporation? Yes, they're a corporation, of course, for tax purposes. But they've bought land, right? And they're also leasing land. So, but they've been able to buy land. They've, so, so that's happening, of course. And certainly there are large companies, there always have been, this is nothing new in the agricultural landscape, that are buying up large swaths of, of farmland because especially in California, it's a pretty good investment. Ag land's a pretty good investment. So, it, of course. It is. Let, let, let me say a couple things very, very, very quickly. If you, if you have a particular and a personal interest in a particular family, uh, as, as Mary's talked about, uh, one of the great things about it, agriculture is there are no shortage of terrific groups, whether it's the Farm Bureau, uh, United Fresh Fruit and, and, and Ag, where, where you can go for a lot of information that deals with that. Th this may be a little counterintuitive, uh, but, but uh, uh, um, like Donna Brazil, Vanessa gave us some of the questions ahead of time, so we knew some of this stuff. Uh, and, and, and I thought a little bit, sorry. I, I, but I think you'll still be able to keep you, the California Groundbreaker gig. No one's going to replace you. You do good. Uh, but I, I thought about this a little bit, and it's kind of counterintuitive. Uh, I think folks really do want that personal connection with, with food, and they're drawn to farmers and agriculture and a way of life. And, and believe me, I've spent 35-plus years in agriculture, and it beats having a real job. Even, even though you work, it's a way, it's a, a lot of us will tell you it's a, it's a way of life, it's what we do, it's who we are, all that good stuff. And so it's something special. But this may seem a little counterintuitive. Um, one of the things you may be able to do better than us, and you actually can have impact on it, you know, because at the end of the day, it's somebody's ground, it's private property, you can't control who they sell to, and the fact there's 35 cousins and all that stuff. But this is a little counterintuitive, but you know, our industry has struggled for decades. How do we get people to eat five a day, really? So the answer to the question isn't necessarily how do you get involved in that, but it's how do, how do we hold hands as consumers and drive consumption? Let me, let me go back to being the, the mayor, and even though this is public and I don't like to bring this up, I, I dealt with economic development, but the, the other challenge we had is like many communities in uh, more rural type of areas, we, we, we had a tough challenge with youth violence. And so as an individual, if we had an incident, of course as a human being, uh, my heart should go out, you want to be present where it's appropriate and where you can, but I wasn't elected to, sh to have a great heart. It was hope hopefully you do. But you're really electing people to, can you make a contribution on the macro level to structurally cause positive change? And, and, if, you, and if you think it through, I, I can't help but wonder, because your question prompted this, if, if folks really want to be engaged, drive consumption. Because w when, when we hear, uh, I'll, I'll never forget the first ag tech thing I went to and the tech people started run, 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 We're going to help you increase yields. And I'm a grower. I, I can't even begin to imagine a world where demand exceeds supply. Be, because we don't live in that world. If demand exceeds supply, 
trust me, the land will be farmed. People will stay in the game. People will get in the game. And, and so I, it, while it's a little counterintuitive, and, and I think wanting to help a friend and do that sort of stuff and having good practical advice is really important, but getting to five a day, and, you know, and those crazy Canadians, they, they wanted to go to 10. You know, it's cold up there, not a lot to do, but so you're gonna, you're gonna, you know, so more vegetables in the winter, because everyone can't do hockey. And uh, uh, so, I mean, they like fruits and vegetables up there. I mean, it, you know, 10 of you had enough, you know, type of, type of thing. But this idea of driving consumption, social media, networks, and really, really driving, driving that, I, I can't help but wonder if that isn't uh, a more satisfying people's movement where you really feel like you're contributing and part of something. Just a thought. We have another audience question. So my question goes along exactly with that. So outside of encouraging people to eat more vegetables, and specifically radicchio, um, what as a consumer can we do to be better advocates for what you do? And also, we have the power of voting with our dollars, so where does that make the biggest impact? That was my ending question, but uh, no, 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 that's a good one. That's a good one. You were consorting together on that question? I was being Donna Brazil, yes. You know, I mean, I always go back to education, Jamie. You know, I, I, that's what we do. And I think that the more people that know even some of the basics about agriculture and farming and the challenges that there are, and that can help spread that did you know kind of ideas. So it's, it's, it's more than, I mean, I, I believe me, I love all the social media and, you know, around people taking pictures of their the f incredible dinner that they just ate. That's great, okay? But that's like the first step, I mean, honestly. So I challenge folks to dig in deeper, to know more, to, to try to reach out and to find where, you know, okay, if there's, if there's a farm that's on that menu of where you just ate, find out more about it. and, and and figure out what that kinds of challenges those farms might be facing and then help to educate others about those things because I think that the more that, again, going back to the numbers, 1.8% of our population are farmers. They are never going to have the numbers to be able to educate everybody. But if the rest of us take the time to even do something a couple times a month to find out something new, to educate, you know, I found out this thing recently, I wanna share it with friends, family, whatever it might be. I, ju I just feel like there are so many headlines that capture our attention, that quickly people respond to, and, and honestly, not oftentimes a lot of those headlines are you know especially around agriculture are very sensationalistic and I just we we got to do this on everything right we got to dig in deeper we got to be better critical thinkers on everything so it's my point about alfalfa you know that's why I challenge people like really what do you really know and then and then let's talk about that I mean I think that opening up the discussions is what we have to do as a society on any topic. So I don't know, that's not necessarily a, a good answer, but it's just those of us that are in that place that have the ability to, to continue with conversations like this, that gets on us to continue to do that.
Let me quickly say, we know Brussels sprouts are on the move. So when you're, vote, when you're voting with your pocketbook and increasing demand, uh, we, 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 pick, we pick that up. And, and uh, so, so, that, so again, that goes back to buy more, buy what you like, and yes, buy radicchio. But, the, <laughs> but the, the other thing, and I think this comes back a little bit to your question, and it sp speaks to the macro piece, Every, every person here, if they're concerned about education and economic viability of the state, should be thinking STEM, 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 and STEM. Yep. And if you're concerned about food, you should be thinking about, you might want to be asking, hey, tell me about the local FF Future Farmers program. What's the deal with 4-H around here? What's my local community college doing? You know, believe it or not, Salinas ag walked away from its ag department at the community college level a couple years ago. The, the industry got jumped back in big time to make things happen. Uh, so, th so this, because there will be a huge wrestling match for human capital in the coming years in terms of all industries are looking for technically adept people. So if you care about food, uh, the, you know, education's gonna matter too, and marrying STEM with ag, uh, so folks wanna do that. Because part of what's happening on the farm is, because believe me, it's a great way of life, but when people don't want to do it and walk away, sometimes that's because it's hard. Increased demand, you're at least making sure it's profitable. It will get figured out. One last audience question. I actually have two questions. Um, so my first question is California's, as we know, is becoming more and more unaffordable. Real estate, gas, taxes, um, the list goes on. So how is the food and ag industry um, going to support or going to help make food accessible for all? And what I mean is for all low income, the poverty, how can they take advantage of organic food or coming to the co-op, uh, being able to eat well and healthy, a well-balanced diet, how is the industry going to support that? Yeah, that's a good, it, you know, it's a very difficult question, right? Because every business, the, going back to Dennis's point, if you're not profitable, then you're not going to still be in business. So then you go, then you sell out and, and then what? What's the good of that, I suppose? So to me, from the, first of all, I think there's all kinds of things that California agriculture is doing that, again, a lot of people don't know about. So for example, there are programs um, throughout the state that the food banks have really revolutionized, which are, and, and it's probably, I'm probably not using the right term, but it's like a, a second harvest. So, this is becoming, especially, and I think Salinas area is really doing a great deal of work in this vein. So one line is harvesting, let's call it lettuce, for the market. And one line, because they're all out there, might as well harvest at the same time, is, 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 is harvesting the, sec the second level or the third level for the food banks. And this is, so it's very, very difficult for farmers to harvest food for for free right it's just we can't expect an industry to harvest something to spend the money that they're not going to get any return on 
going back, but there's no subsidy for the ma majority of California agriculture because we're not in the subsidy, we're not in that area within our what, what we grow here. So we have to find other ways to, and, and back to California agriculture being very innovative, like what are some ways that we can be innovative? This has been one of those. And then that food goes to food banks and there's a lot of food banks now that, are, that have a lot more opportunity for fresh fruit and vegetables. They, they, many food banks don't, by the way. That's another area that we could be working on as communities. We're lucky here in Sacramento that many of our food banks do have coolers and they have the ability to store fresh fruits and vegetables, but many don't around the state. So that's an area that, that could help provide um, more people that access. But the re I mean, th those are just really hard questions because you're basically asking an industry to do something that's at cost or lower than cost, how do they recoup that? I mean, I, I'm just I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, it was like, like that's it a was difficult like question. Once Obamacare got into effect, everyone had healthcare was affordable for all. Well, I think part of the answer is we'll see. What 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 I can tell you is if you look at the history, of, and again, I'll refer to Monterey County specialty crop agriculture. What 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 I know. Um, you know, starting from in the 60s and 70s, the distribution system really was, you know, it was a straight load of broccoli and it was going to a terminal. Then as you got into the 70s and 80s, we had mixed load consolidation and you had more direct relationships directly with with retailers. So so if you look at, and now all of a sudden, I mean, two month, four months ago, who would have ever put Amazon and Whole Foods together in the same sentence? So, so, the, so there's a real, jump ball in terms of uh, the, supply, the supply chain. So there, there's going to be an evolution, but what, what I think I would watch and be intrigued and encouraged by, along with what Mary just said, because I, I can tell you, having been the mayor of the, where there is prosperity, we, we have seen across the board unfailing generosity. But the marketplace is likely to get involved also, because you're, star you're starting to hear footsteps around sustainability, fair trade types of discussions from large, large customers. So, so I think, the, and, and you're also hearing a lot about food waste. Now, we didn't waste it, because we didn't, we didn't load a truck and go, by the way, we put on the truck, we know you only ordered 600 uh, boxes of lettuce, but we're giving you 1,000. We're putting 400 on, and we know you're gonna waste 40%. We didn't do that. We only put on what they order. So, so waste is taking place in other parts of, of the system. H however, this issue of people not being fed, uh, disparity in incomes. Uh, well, you know, a lot, of, yeah, but you know, th those, are mar those are marketplace dis decisions. I, I mean, I, I uh, you know, I mean, just having walked through the store and done, done a store check, I mean, this, this is a special spot, obviously. It's not necessarily where 100% of the, you know the country is, which, which is neither here nor they're there. So I think I think part of the answer is marketplace dynamics, uh, generosity, I, and I also believe there is going to be private industry discussions around around those types of things. So I think we'll have to kind of kind of see how they play they they play out. And last question, um, you talked about labor and managing the farm. <laughs> managing, um, you talked about labor and managing the land. So 
uh, with Mr. Trump's vision of America and illegal immigrants, where do you see the future? Yes, I wanted to ask that question too because we're thinking about a specific food for thought panel on immigration and workforce and ag. So this could be some feedback on that. Well, I mean, it's the number one issue in agriculture, there's no doubt, uh, especially in California, back to especially crops that need a lot of hand harvesting. I mean, they still, you know, we can talk about robotics all day, but they haven't yet figured out how to use robots to pick strawberries or to pick, you know, to pick uh, all apples or whatever it might be. So, I mean, UC Davis has done a lot of really great research on this, and you're probably going to have one of them on the panel. But so an example of what has changed even in the last 10 years is they do, every year, they do surveys of what the farm labor numbers look like. And normally, up to about five years ago, about 20% of the workforce is what's considered you know, new arrivals, so within five years. Late in the last five years, that number has dropped down to 2%. And, the, and the, again, kind of along the same lines of the age of the, of the farmer and the age of the farm manager that I was talking about earlier, the age of the farm worker has also grown and, you know, higher and higher. So we, and, and, they're, and they're leaving the industry completely. I mean, I, I, when I saw, the first thing I thought of when I saw the fires in Sonoma and Napa with, you know, with, with, was the farm workers, and thinking about that they're going to now have the opportunity, too, to move to the construction industry and make a lot more money. I mean, that's just the reality right now, is that, especially in California, going back to your point about affordability of housing. And so where is that, you know, where are they going to come from? In, in the Trump's vision of America? No, that, that they're, they're not coming. They're not coming. The num and it's quite, the, it's quite the opposite. They're leaving, right? And there's all kinds of, of great uh, articles and, and research and going on about that. And we hear about it daily about people, the numbers of people leaving. So Cal the only thing that agriculture right now is able to do is move to automation, as well as, so there's kind of like three prongs. So there's automation, there's, um, the, there's obviously paying more, and many more people are doing that, they are paying more, and they're still not getting the labor. Even in paying more, they're not getting the labor, because to your point earlier, it's really hard work. There is no harder work out there than being a farm laborer. There is no harder work. So even with the increased pay, still don't get the numbers. Uh, and then the third leg is, is kind of adding additional benefits, right? So whether it's health benefits or it's uh, giving someone year-round work or housing or these other kinds of opportunities, it's still not making up the gap. So there's, there's really... There's no bigger challenge, especially to California agriculture. And it's, it's going to be, um, you know, again, kind of going back to the small farm versus large farm. The small farmers, especially, that may not have the ability to, do, to pay more or to have the automation or whatever, where, where do they end up in this? And, you know, they have to charge more for their, their crops. They have to because it costs more for them to produce it, to harvest it, to get it to market. And so 
I mean, part of this, I think, is people being willing, and, and it, it's very difficult because we have, we have uh, communities that can't afford it, but being willing to pay more for food. It's just such a hard, it's just a hard, all of it is hard. It's complex. All right, we got, I know we have two last audience questions, so we're going to wrap it up with them, and they're going to be really good ones. So let's start with the gentleman. <laughs> Setting them up. I guess we probably know that the food price is increasing. Like for nowadays, we, if you want to buy like real food, you're going to have to pay more for high-quality food. So like, I just want to back it up a little bit. Um, Americans paying like really low percent of their income for food. And do you foresee a um, future where we're going to have to pay a lot more with like um, water limiting, like higher fertilizer costs, and a lot of things that adding up to food production? Do you foresee a really high cost of food in the future? Yeah, and I, I want to ask, how much do Americans pay percentage of income compared to other countries? I was just curious how we rank in terms of how much we pay versus others. And so just wanted to tie that in there, too. We're at the bottom. We, we, we spend w way less um, of our take-home dollars, no matter what our income bracket, uh, with regards to our food. I think it's somewhere now, it used to be 10 cents on the dollar, but I feel like now it's around 15, I think, um, in, in some recent 12 to 15 more recent uh, research. So yeah, that's, a, uh, yes, I, I think we will. And honestly, I would really like to see that. As long as that money a or a chunk of a good, a more higher proportion is going back to the farmer. Because <laughs> on honestly, the food dollar, you look at the food dollar, the majority, right, it is not going to the farmer at all. It's going to all of those other pieces of the system. That is one of the reasons why direct, you know, if you're buying directly from the farmer, that's one of those reasons why it's nicer, right? Because you know there's no middleman. But the reality, that's not our, for the most part, that's not our reality. That's not what we can do most of the time. Yes, we can go to farmer's markets, but that's only usually a small percentage of, of our total food bill, right? I mean, it just is. So... I would like to see the other piece of that is is if you factor in kind of environmental, um, you know, the environmental impact, right, of the food of the food that, that then you would be paying more. I think that in 20 years, maybe it'll be less, but 20 years we're going to see a pretty a, a big difference in terms of how much we're spending on our food dollar. Yeah. That's a complicated question. The, the, the answer is it depends. It depends on the commodity. I can tell you there is tons of pressure to have fewer inputs to, you, you know, none, none of us are sitting there waking up every day and it's like, oh, God, another day where we get to put a bunch of fertilizer and pesticides on stuff. We just love that. that that's, that's not how we think. I mean, it's an extraordinary, you know, it's, it's a big cost. We're, we're interested in, in as little as possible to get the desired outcome for for the consumer i you know it it depends on the item if you know for instance if you live in the packaged salad world the retailer will say how, how many of you buy packaged salads so okay 
some point. Okay, well, at some there's, point. There's a well, few of us in well, the audience okay. that do. Well, uh, you know, there, but for instance, on the package salad deal, God forbid you raise the retail because you had to pass costs through from what would be a 299 ring to a 349 ring because your costs went up. It ain't happening. And, and so, I, you know, it's uh, the ability to pass through costs are, are not necessarily there. So we'll, we'll see. I think over time the, the dam breaks uh, at, at, at some point. Um, you know, ult ultimately retailers are not going to move off their margin structures. Wholesalers are not going to move off their mar margin structures. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're putting in the money in the ground, making the capital investment, and trying to be as efficient as possible because we know the invisible hand of the market works. The market will only bear so much, you know. So, uh, so, so I think, you know, logically, I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I'll be dating myself, but I remember, uh, you know, because I was a sophomore on the varsity baseball team, so when I was with the seniors, I had to buy gas and I had a dollar, and I could buy four gallons, because it was only a quarter. So stuff goes up. <laughs> no, but I'm not gonna tell you that movies were only a dime when I was a kid, I'm not that old. <laughs> but, um, you know, obviously there's tons of uh, up, upward upward pressure, but, uh, you know, there's a lot, you know, what, what does it mean that Amazon becomes a major food supplier? What, what does that mean? I mean, they're, they're not running around telling anyone we're, we're the high-cost purveyor. And, and trust me, when you've, when you've got industry consolidation and a lot of purchasing power, you're, you're, you, uh, uh, I, think, I think our industry is going to have to do a good job of going, look, these are our costs, really, and if we're going to be in strategic relationships, you know, we need to be able to come out so you can do your thing. So, so uh, you know, I, I kind of view everything as a bit of a jump ball, and it's, you know, it's like a kaleidoscope. It's going to, you know, it's going to kind of be fine-tuned over over the next couple of years so so I don't think we quite know the answer answer to that but uh, the good news is we're you know I mean we really we really do have uh, the highest quality food at the at the lowest lowest prices that's not all bad I, sh I should mention that our next food for thought for January scheduled before the ag and immigration is on excuse me our local grocery stores in the age of Amazon, because we've got Cordy Brothers and Rayleigh's and right. Nugget and the co-op, all local, and how they're going to handle Amazon. I heard that Amazon just cut Whole Foods prices for, I guess, fish and poultry and meat again. So it'll be interesting. We have one last question and then our raffle. So best question of the night coming up. <laughs> Well, first, thank you so much um, for a fantastic discussion this evening and for your time and for your insight. Um, so we talked a little bit about uh, the immigrant population that will be leaving the industry, um, robotics, that we might be replacing them. Uh, what, what I'm wondering is, is there any specific um, outreach or, or anything that's directly engaging the children of immigrants to make sure that they're staying a part of our farming community. Um, Mary, I'm specifically kind of thinking about Cape Esparto, Madison, Winters. I'm sure this is also an issue in Salinas. Um, and just kind of curious if there's anything specifically to make sure they feel a part of our, our community. Yeah, so um, we have, like I said, been running the Farms Leadership Program now since 1993. and 
we have expanded that program now to 16 counties across California, including Monterey and Santa Cruz. And we have always hoped and targeted and focused on the children of immigrants because quite honestly, especially farm, farm labor, kids that are, you know, from uh, their parents are farm laborers because they've been told for years and years, leave agriculture. You, you do not want to do this job. Get out, do anything else but this. And, you know, understandably, very, very hard job. Can understand why they would want their children to be doing something different. I mean, I personally grew up, my elementary school was 75% Latino. The majority of the kids that I went to school with were children of farm workers. All of my best friends were children of farm workers. And they all said, go do something else. Go become a doctor, become a lawyer, become a dentist, become whatever. And they did, right? Because that was what they were pushed to do. I think what we really, what we're trying to do with our programs is to say that you have a place in agriculture. You have a place in agriculture, environmental sciences, natural resources. We want you. We want your experience. We want your dedication. We want your commitment. We want your, you know, your your family tradition, and and that it's important. And especially in many of our small rural communities, those those kids they want to stay close to home. They want to stay close to their families, but they don't know where they can can work. And so many of our uh, many of our strategic partners across the state, whether it's Driscolls. You know, whether it's, um, you know, Bee Sweet Citrus, whether it's, you know, Grimway, the, these folks, same, they have the same goals. They also want the children of, of their, their, their labor force to be employed with their, in their company, but in places that maybe their parents weren't. So whether it's in the, we have a woman who's a, she actually went through our programs in the Stockton area. And she ended up going to college at Cal Poly San Luis and, and getting a master's degree. And now she's working for Driscoll's as, and she's a children, single mom, um, farm worker. She is doing the blueberry forecasting for North America. Like, who knew that was a job, right? Like, what? <laughs> for Driscoll's. And so these are the kinds of people, the stories that we want to make sure other other people know, like her, right? That, that, that there are opportunities there, that we want you, that we need you, that you're valuable. Um, please look, look at these other opportunities. So that's what our programs do. Dennis, last word. Yeah, no, just the, 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 the trick is uh, you've, you've got to get young people to understand that it's not farmer, farm worker, that, that agriculture is, is just this, uh, uh, has an extraordinarily broad range of opportunities. The last word I will throw in is kind of from an entrepreneurial standpoint. One of the things, and you know, Salinas is 75 plus percent Latino. One, one of the things uh, that I get excited about when I and 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 I'm and I'm where you see the convergence of STEM engineering and opportunity. It, it's kind of an interesting phenomena. There's really an entrepreneurial bent to a lot of a lot of these uh, young people. And if you think about agriculture, typically the folks who are going to make a lot of money in ag, they're going to own the land or they're going to own the facilities. The beauty of the Silicon Valley and ag tech and this new world is if you own ideas and provide services, 
now you've got an a, a new avenue for wealth creation. So I, so I think that's one of the particularly exciting developments. And, you know, the, the deal in California, and particularly rural California, is we wake up every day diverse. Nobody's got to try. Nobody, nobody's got to fake it. So, so the reality is getting these young people excited about careers in ag and really understanding what's possible, um, you know, I, I think that really opens up uh, s some new avenues. And, and I think that's... Uh, and I think that's going to be a good thing, good thing for uh, for California. So I, I I really I really get excited about uh, I think the future uh, um, a lot of the students you're talking about have if we do a good job of making them aware of it. Yeah, I was and I, I don't want to have that last word, but kind of tying into this, there was a story that I use as a reference point when I was feeding the, the Donna or Donna, <laughs> Dennis and Mary the questions. Uh, there was the Economist, which is a British publication, kind of you know very focused on the future of ag, and they were talking about these niches available for farmers uh, that they saw like inland fish farming and vertical urban farming and uh, turning corn into bourbon with an on-farm distillery and uh, creating hands-on farm experiences with the help of Airbnb. So there all seems to be niches, uh, forecasting blueberries for Driscoll. So it seems like there's a, a range. So this just, I know we just touched the surface, but thank you very much for giving us an idea of what's going on and forecasting what the future of farming is. So thank you both for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Food for Thought conversation was held on November 15, 2017 at the Sacramento Natural Foods Co-op. Many thanks to Mary Kimball and her team from the Center for Land-Based Learning and to Dennis Donahue for making the three-hour drive from his hometown of Salinas to be part of this discussion. A special thanks to the co-op's marketing and events team, Christina O'Hara, Julia Thomas, Lori Friedley, and Kristen Schoenborn for helping us put this event together. And to Michelle Mastudo, president of the co-op's board of directors, for a gracious start to the evening. Also thanks to our own Groundbreakers board of directors who attended, Scott Eggert for greeting people at the door, and J.E. Pano for pouring his Roost Dollar beer. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.